Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast with members going to therapy for years of Catholic guilt. (laughs) This week we have Laura and Lindsay. We are also joined by two incredible guests, Lauren Jewett and Erica Katsky. Thank you both so much for being here with us. Thank you. Welcome. Yay, thank you. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yay. So let's just start with some introductions. Can y'all introduce briefly who you are in whatever way you feel comfortable? Yeah, sure. My name is Lauren Jewett. I've been friends with Laura for a long time. I'm currently a Master of Divinity student here at the Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, California. I'm about to graduate, and I'm really, really excited about that. (laughs) It's been a long process. But yeah, so my current role in the faith community is that I'm an interfaith liaison and spiritual care coordinator at a nonprofit here in Berkeley called Youth Spirit Artworks, Mm. which sometimes people don't hear me the first time, but it's called Youth Spirit Artworks. And it's an interfaith arts and jobs training program for at-risk youth ages 16 to 25 here in the Bay Area. It's been around for about 10 years. And that's my current work in in this role of faith leader that I'm slowly getting used to. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Hi, I'm Erica, and I have been an organizer, a community organizer for the past 20 years, and I have worked in a variety of settings from uh, issue-based organizing to union organizing, did some political party work for the last 15 years, though I've really been working with congregations and other faith communities through the PICO National Network, which I believe is in the process of changing its name to Faith in Action, which is a actually international network of folks who are dedicated to teaching organizing skills to faith communities Mm -hmm. in order that they can build campaigns on the issues that impact people in their community. So a lot of issues around immigration or affordable housing or education or healthcare. My job was to come in and help congregations figure out how to harness and then use their power effectively. I'm taking actually a tiny break from organizing right now. Last year, I finished my master's at Pacific School of Religion, where Lauren is currently. The master's program was called the Master's of Arts in Spirituality and Social Transformation. Wow. Um, Wow. (laughs) And and my master's thesis, which I am now in the process of taking to doctoral work, Mm. was a Marxist reading of the Tower of Babel story. Wow. That's my awesome. research, um, <laughs> yeah. my research is economic is in economic theology, and I look particularly at theological critique of capitalism and trying to not only you know I I, I want sort of folks in the faith community to have more nuanced economic critique beyond we should take care of the poor and make sure that people have food. And the the sacred text actually says some pretty radical things about how our economy should function and the impact of economic sort of culture and thinking on our spiritual lives. And so my work is sort of dedicated to unearthing that and getting it more in public discourse, Mm. you know, so that we don't end up with the kind of milk toast response to poverty that we usually see from the faith community. (laughs) That's, That's incredible. amazing. <laughs> Side note, Erica's graduation party was epically themed on the Tower of Babel story, including waffle fruit towers that were yes, just built our tower. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. I thought uh, it was incredible. Really great. <laughs> That's so good. That's amazing. So as we were kind of putting together this episode, we kept running into the issues of some different definitions, particularly the differences between religion and faith. And so I wanted us next to kind of delve into how y'all define religion, and then we'll get into how y'all define faith. Yeah, so I think religion has a way of being used as a catch-all word for a lot of different terms. And so I think it's important to distinguish some of these things, especially 
the ways that they're used in public discourse aren't always specific in a way that's helpful for, for understanding the subtler differences between these things. So at least how I understand religion is that the origins of religion are really in asking questions and, and trying to search out meaning in one's life or one's place in the world. And some of the earliest human rituals really were trying to get at these questions. And the, and the way that I understand religion is that it's sort of a genealogical spiral of asking these questions throughout human history and throughout different groups of people as they moved around the world asking these questions. Those answers started to, I don't know, develop particularities that then evolved into many of the faith traditions that we see in the world today. So that's primarily how I understand religion and that it really has to do with the the more, at, at this point in human history, has to do with the institutions around those questions and answers and the practices in a community or in, within a tradition around those questions and answers. Yeah, I would echo a, a lot of that. I think the way that I would describe it sort of similarly to what Lauren said is faith is just simply at its core belief in something for which there is no evidence. And in that way, it's a choice. You don't mm -hmm. have facts or data for what you choose to believe in, but you're sort of saying to yourself, I'm choosing to believe it anyway. And that choice that faith is, in my experience, what really drives hope, right? So a belief in something gives people energy to work for it. But you can have faith in all kinds of things. I, for example, have faith that the presence of this president is actually going to shift our country into a more radical consciousness, right? So I have faith in that opportunity. Mm. And that energizes me to get out there and actually try to make something of it. So I think faith is actually a really important concept, especially sort of in this kind of data-driven, you know, proof-labeled culture that we're living in. Some things don't are and are never going to have proof, but we still make a choice to believe them. So it's important to sort of identify what are the things you're making a choice to believe. And then I think, as Lauren said, religion in my mind is you know the groupings or the, the the groupings of people who have sort of chosen to have similar faith right so they have answered the questions that Lauren was talking about in in very similar ways and and that that way of thinking or way of believing in their mind sort of brings them together in a in community and that that those communities now you know have operated for thousands of years and that 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 foundation sort of gives people comfort it gives people meaning in their lives it gives people connection and the thing you know and and without sort of downplaying the damage that religious institutions have done um, and continue to do all over the world. I think that in this moment, it becomes particularly important to talk about religion as a community of people who are making similar choices about what they believe in, because it is a way of sort of pushing back against this hyper-individualistic culture that teaches us that you are solo, pull yourself up by your bootstraps in this world, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which is a kind of faith, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like that is a story for which totally. we have very little evidence. Right. Um, and if we don't sort of have an alternative story that we're telling, then that story is very happy to like slip in and fill the gap. So I think for us, for me anyway, it's not so important sort of which tradition you choose or how strictly you observe it or whatever. What is important is that people start to define what it is they believe and that they find a community of people that they are enacting that with um, so mm -hmm. that we're not these solo bubbles who are sort of adrift in this capitalist nonsense and, you know, kind of like able to flow whatever way the economic wind is flowing. Totally. Um, so I think that religion is important to talk about right now. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that like thinking about the American dream as dogmatic is like really interesting because that's how we mm -hmm. see it. That's how it's portrayed in the media. That's how, you know, people's blind belief in meritocracy is like really staggering on some level. So it's a really cool way of, of thinking about that for sure. 
Yeah, and just one quick thing I want to throw in that I was thinking while Erica was talking is that I think it's also really important to recognize that agnosticism and atheism are also faiths in the way that Erica defined mm. them because it's a belief in a certain understanding. And mm. I think sometimes those words get thrown around in a way that that tries to just completely reject any belief in anything, but that's actually a whole that's a different thing. Um, but <laughs> right. That's like nihilism or nihilism or however you pronounce it. But I think that if you say you're atheist, you're saying, well, I, I don't believe in a God, but that's still a belief mm -hmm. that you and how you understand the world and how you understand your place in it. And so one thing that is really important to me in, in the interfaith work I do is really intentionally inviting people who call themselves agnostics or atheists to the table, because that's also a faith. And that's also something that's welcome in, in trying to, to work out these questions and also how we respond to the current problems in our society and world in a broader collective. So that, that's just something I wanted to, to throw in there as well. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's super, it's always super interesting to me to have this kind of conversation about what constitutes religion is because I'm Jewish and and also married to a rabbi and it is so clear to me that you could be a Jew and not have any belief in God and there are so many Jews out there who consider themselves culturally Jewish or they just you know they do some th holidays or whatever and that they still have this like communal connection mm because that is what's sort of foundational to them. That's what they believe in, right, is community. So it's sort of echoing like what Lauren's saying is that we sort of have a American narrative about what religion is that yes. is very, you know, Christian-centric. It's from the founding of this country. But religion and faith and faith practice actually take so many different, so many different forms and so many different lives. And so the idea that, like we would have defined for people what they're allowed to call faith and religion is mm -hmm. like another point of resistance in my mind, you know, that you don't, it doesn't get to be defined for us by the larger culture. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. I noticed that originally when you were looking through different terms that you also mentioned spirituality, do you want to define that one or do we want to kind of leave that one be for the moment? <laughs> For me, faith is an active thing. It's kind of like brushing your teeth, right? Like you're never finished <laughs> brushing your teeth. Um, and so like, no, it is. like. Wait, I, mean, I know, like, that's why I'm laughing. So for me, spirituality is about the practice of what I believe in, right? And those practices are the things that reaffirm or help me understand the way I am connected to the people in my life, the people who are around me, but not necessarily in my life, the living things, the inanimate objects, like how do I fit in this world? And my sort of taking time to remind myself in whatever way I do, some people do it through writing, some people do it through meditation, some people do it through prayer, some people do it by going for a hike or going to whatever, like that is sort of the practice of mm. my spirituality and that it's linked to what I am choosing to believe as part of my faith and may also be linked to some traditions that I'm picking up from my religious tradition or, or that I'm doing with other people who are part of my religious community. That's how I would understand spirituality. I think that's helpful. I think right now people use spirituality because it, it doesn't carry as much baggage as religion in some in some spaces and for some people. But I think what Erica said about the practices of spirituality can really be this, the same as the practices of religion. Erica mentioned prayer or meditation, but there's an element that is very similar between those two terms. But it seems in the last, I don't know, 10 to 15 years, the kind of spiritual but not religious movement has grown. But sometimes what this what spirituality looks like kind of in day to day acting out is very similar to what a religious being a part of a religious tradition or a, a religious community could look like as well. Mm -hmm. So. I think it's important to also distinguish that like spirituality isn't somehow less oppressive than religion. You know what I mean? Like 
that I think sometimes gets implied, but that really it's about the practices and whether you affiliate yourself with a faith tradition or not, how you act out your faith is still ultimately a a spiritual process. Awesome. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) So... That that's an incredible and like really great way for us to like ground this episode. So thank y'all for taking the time to do that. And I don't mean to take a turn into negativity, uh, <laughs> but so the reason do why it. this is topic, yeah, do it. go there. <laughs> yes, Let's I'm ready. I'm so ready. Um, the reason why this topic is so important to me, um, and Lauren has heard this probably more than any other friend I've ever had because she is so like incredible in her patience with my (laughs) anger about it um, is because I grew up Catholic um, and it was an extremely scarring experience for me. I do know other folks who grew up Catholic and didn't have quite the same experience, but for me, I still have to work through a ton of issues um, that this still brings up for me on a regular basis as someone who's almost 30 years old. And an obvious thing was that I couldn't think about my own sexuality at all, both in terms of who I am interested in, but also in terms of feeling positive about my own body in any way. And as someone who has a reproductive health issue, when I started experiencing a lot of pain when it came to being intimate with a partner, I had no actual understanding or resources about that being not okay. And a lot of that, I do believe, was based in my really intense lack of understanding about my own body and my own sexuality. It also made me believe that I would literally burn in hell for eternity for masturbating or any other quote-unquote deviant behavior that I did. Girl, same. And one time, my religion teacher showed us the Left Behind film, which if you aren't aware of that nonsense, it's like some weird version of like when the apocalypse happens and if you are a believer you get raptured up into heaven and if you don't you go into like this insanity land which is like everyone else that's left on the planet and I got so mad that I literally gave myself a bloody nose out of anger which like I don't know how to explain that that happened at all like it's never happened before or after that but I was so angry you know I was made to believe that abortion was murdering children that any religion other than Catholicism was wrong and that the chance of me getting into heaven was the same chance as fitting an elephant through the eye of a sewing needle which Lauren told me it's actually supposed to be a camel so maybe I'm just either remembering that wrong or the person got it wrong when they told it to me. Yeah, I mean, it's not as hard as getting an elephant through, but it's pretty hard because it's pretty big, you know. (laughs) So that isn't even getting into the problematic patriarchal sexist issues that come from these like conservative Christian religions. You know, we talked about religion and how that definition can be what y'all both explained it as. But, you know, particularly in the United States, it, it is often this really conservative force. When I got to college, I kindled a friendship with Lauren and she and I grew our friendship at a time that I was in a really abusive relationship. And so looking back on that relationship, I knew that one of the main reasons that I was so easily abused was because it fit into this norm that I had grown up with within Catholicism. And particularly being able to shovel guilt onto myself in ways that didn't require any explanation. So I allowed someone to treat me like crap and blame myself continually for that experience uh, because I was so, it was a hat that I could really easily wear. But Lauren always had a totally different perspective on religion and faith. And this was even before she thought about going to grad school, let alone to a divinity program. And she has always had a softer approach to all of these topics and has really grown into someone who champions leftist issues through faith-based organizing. And I'm super proud of her and I'm super grateful (laughs) for her perspective because I truly would just be like so angsty and unable to understand or think about these issues at all if it weren't for her. So... (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> deep breath. Yeah. That's intense. yeah. <laughs> it's just a lot. Yes. And and it's and it's really important to to honor the really hurtful experiences that many people do have in faith communities or as part of theological traditions that teach that women aren't as holy as men and and all of that like Laura said, has really real implications on your life and how you think of yourself and how you act in the world. And it's just important to to tell those stories and, and honor that that is a real experience. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of work to be done around those, both healing for the people who've been hurt and then also healing the institutions that perpetuate that hurt so that that doesn't continue into the future. Yeah. I had a pretty similar experience to Laura, but I grew up predominantly Baptist. Again, I mean, there was a lot of shame and a lot of guilt that came along with that part of my upbringing. Yeah, didn't realize that I was not straight until I was in college because I was also attracted to men. And I just, I don't know, like would not let myself consider Mm -hmm. being attracted to women because it was a sin I was taught. I also wound up in an abusive relationship at the beginning of my undergrad education. And it was with the first person I ever had sex with. And I knew pretty early on that things weren't great. I knew that he was like, you know, coerced me into, into sex. I talked about this on a previous episode, but I wanted so badly for, I mean, to only have sex with one person in my life that I tried really hard to make it work because I figured, you know, if I only had sex with the one person, then it would be all the same to God as if I had waited until I was married, right? Mm. Yeah, so that was, uh, I just, I let myself go through a lot of shit because of the religious messages I I had been taught. And part of my experience in like leaving Christianity was just, coming to grips with the fact that I have terrible clinical anxiety and there are so many different ways that you can interpret the Bible or whatever religious text and they've been translated so many times and if it's so difficult to get into heaven based on various even denominations of Christianity and what different churches within specific denominations teach Jesus is forgiving of certain things to a certain extent but he's not forgiving of others. And it's just, there's so many mixed messages. And if you get something wrong, you could wind up in hell. And I'm like, no loving God would put me through this. Like no (laughs) loving God would give me this anxiety and the threat of hell and such unclear messages as to how to avoid hell. And I got to the point where I knew that if God were loving, then there would be no hell. Like there wouldn't be that Mm -hmm. threat. And if he were that you know, that vengeful, then he didn't deserve my worship. And so I figured at that point, it just didn't matter if I, if I worshiped anyway, because, well, either he'd forgive me if I just was a good person and, and, you know, tried to help people as best as I could, whether or not I went to church and prayed to him explicitly. But if I'm going to hell, then I'm going to hell. So (laughs) there was no use anymore, uh, stressing myself out about it because it was just, it was, so difficult, but I know that a lot of people have had opposite experience. Like a lot of people have been through similar things to what I've been through and have found solace Mm -hmm. in their faith. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know how that, how that happens. (laughs) I want to add to folks really quickly that, especially for our two other, or our other guests, that Lindsay was also homeschooled. In, oh, a, yeah. in a way that like <laughs> amplified that specific mm, bre- brand mm-hmm. of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I just want to notice that, and, and Lindsay, this isn't a critique, but I'm just noticing the, the language you used around God was always male pronouns. Oh yeah. And I think that that's something that my guess from what I've listened to the podcast so far is that if you did believe in a God, I don't think you would believe in a God that used exclusively male pronouns and yet that's the language Mm -hmm. that many of us are Mm -hmm. taught is the only language and so one of my core questions coming to seminary is what language around I don't even usually use the term God that that often but sometimes I do because other people need to understand what I'm talking about and I can't be totally like 
woo-woo, like, oh, I'm going to use all this fluffy language all the time. Uh, but, but I really sought out language around the divine and language around things that I considered holy and sacred or beyond my understanding that really resonated with me and that made me feel like, oh, yeah, that's something I can get behind. That's, mm-hmm. that's a way of expressing that, that I can believe and that honors me in my social location and in my experience and it's hard work it's hard work and it sometimes it takes a lot of digging and it, it takes a lot of experimenting with different words and and such but that's been a real real quest of mine because for me exclusively male pronouns around god just make me tune out right away mm-hmm. <laughs> as they probably should anything like that really is like a red flag <laughs> Yeah, I was actually thinking about like explaining my religious background and was like, should I, I mean, should I use they, should I use she, like what pronoun should I use? But in the tradition that I was raised in, it was always, you know, God's a man and God created Adam specifically in his image. So clearly he's a dude. But uh, (laughs) Except Adam just really means earth creature, which I'm sure Erica could go into more if she wanted to. Well, it's from the same root in Hebrew, Adam. It Adama is earth, right? It's like right. comes from the earth. But it it's fascinating because all of this stuff is like a choice. Like it's like a key indicator of whose perspective it's coming mm. from. When mm-hmm. you know all of the people in power are men, and the voice is male, and the rules are male centric and heterocentric. You know, it's like. Oh, clearly, like, this is a set of choices that was made by somebody who doesn't have my experience of the world. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of expand upon each of your own stories in terms of where have you come to your connection with faith, religion, and this work that you do? So as I said before, I'm Jewish. I was raised in the South Bay, actually between the South Bay and San Francisco. My mom moved to San Francisco when I was very young. So I, I plugged that in because I've always identified more with San Francisco, <laughs> which is where I live now. And I was raised in a very Jewishly identified family, but not an incredibly observant or particularly Jewishly educated family. So there was a lot of gap in my home practice, I would say. But my Jewish education was very important to my mother. So from very, very early on, we were in synagogue. I actually started my education at a pretty observant synagogue in the South Bay. So I grew up sort of learning the Hebrew alphabet the same time I was learning the English alphabet and went to religious school three or four times a week. And that was mostly about making sure that we were getting Jewish tradition and Hebrew language and the calendar and the community at the same time you know, during that important developmental phase. So Jewish community was very important to me and my connections were all in the Jewish community at the same time. And kind of as a funny side note of being a Bay Area Jew, I also went to an Episcopal primary school where we went to mass three times a week and which I was one of like four students in the entire school who didn't kneel during prayer and didn't take communion. And so I grew up constantly feeling other and feeling exoticized. But I have deep love for the Episcopalians because they really appreciated religious diversity in the school. And they made a point of holding up our holidays when they were when they came around, so particularly Passover. And they had a clear message about respect and honoring different traditions. And so even though I felt different and I knew I didn't fit in at school, I never felt bad or shamed for being Jewish. And that was a real gift. Mm. And And I learned a lot about Christianity, which I think is in the United States really important. It is the mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. faith that defines much of our political policy, much of our economic policy. And um, I think I, I realized that very early on, that that was not a set of beliefs that I ascribed to, but that I saw reflected everywhere. So my parents got divorced when I was very young. When I was five, my sister was four and my brother had actually just been born and 
they had a really terrible, horrifically violent divorce. And it involved police and court-appointed therapists and child protective services. And for literally about 15 years, we were in and out of various parts of the justice system while my parents argued over everything. And during that time, my synagogue played a really important role in giving me and my sister and my brother a foundation. So I had someone I could call at all times. I knew that I would always have a place to go if I needed it. There were people in my life who encouraged me to stay focused on school, which is the thing that got me out of California and out of my family at 17. Mm. And, you know, they, they sort of helped me have a sense of hope that there was some kind of life outside the hell that I was living in. Both my parents are alcoholics. It was not, you know, there were very few, a kid who didn't have sort of the economic resources that I had access to and the community that I had access to would have ended up in a very different place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I got to college and I got stabilized and I realized that even though they had played such a life-giving role for me during that time, that not once in all of those years did the rabbi, for example, sit my parents down in his office and say to them, this has got to stop. You have to get it together for your children's sake. And mm-hmm. we're here to support you. We're here to help you. But we're, we cannot allow you to do what you're doing to each other and to your children. Mm-hmm. And years of therapy later, I, <laughs> I, I sort of realized that while I was incredibly grateful and feel incredibly indebted to my community, I'm also really mad totally. about the fact that they mm-hmm. shied away from stepping in and really doing the thing that probably could have shifted my reality when I was a kid. So I think I sort of translated that into the work that I'm doing, right? That I, I realize I look around and I see faith communities doing an extraordinary amount of good in the world, right? Like people, they feed people, you know, I have seen folks show up pissed drunk and or strung out in churches and be fed and taken care of and or they find housing for folks or whatever it is they visit the sick they give people funeral like all of the things that they do to care for people who are broken but when it comes to actually using power to make change they're not so good at that (laughs) Hmm. Um, and so I dedicated sort of my work my career to pushing religious tradition, which has, you know, some of these traditions, some of these institutions, as we all know, have an enormous amount of power. They have political power at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, for sure. All of the good that could be done based on the beliefs that people purport to have is just wasted energy because people are afraid of getting involved in politics. They're afraid of Mm -hmm. getting into the messiness of making real change. And, you know, because I am an eternal optimist, like I see potential for that. And I've seen it happen. And so that's what I I feel dedicated to. And I feel like is about my, you know, my faith and my spirituality is an active one. And I draw from Jewish tradition. You know, I always say to folks, I was lucky enough to be raised Jewish because, (laughs) um, you know, Judaism is based on questions. Like I, Mm -hmm. you know, had complete culture shock working in, you know, Baptist churches or Presbyterian churches where I would go in and say like, okay, we've done all this. We've heard all these stories. We see all this you know, we've learned all this stuff about policy around homelessness or that. what should we do? You know, what do we want to do? What do, what do we think our next step is? And people would look at me and they would say, well, what does the pastor think we should do? <laughs> <laughs> and 
And I would say, wow, you would never hear that in the synagogue. You would have 55 different opinions and whatever the rabbi said, people would want it the exact opposite. (laughs) And that's just my culture, right? It's like we're taught to question everything. Mm -hmm. Nothing is given. But I realize that it's not as, as we've heard even from your stories, that that's not people's experience of right. religion and religious tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know that I am kind of stepping lightly into a world that, you know, where people kind of take for granted that religion has answers that people actually believe are correct and that <laughs> others, therefore, are wrong. Right. Um, and that's just not how my tradition works. So it's like hard for me to get my head around, but but I know that that is a lot of people's experience. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I, I didn't realize, Erica, that we had kind of the Episcopalian connection, just in that you grew up in going to some Episcopalian schools. But my first experience with religion, organized religion, was just in my, my grandmother's Episcopal church. And we just had this kick-ass kids program every Wednesday. And it was called uh, Kids Night Out. (laughs) And we just all got to hang out and basically eat, you know, junky kids food like mac and cheese and all that good stuff and pizza or whatever. And then we just like sang songs. And I don't remember any of them being particularly theologically informed necessarily. Uh, I don't. I don't even remember any of the ones that we like sang a lot. And then every once in a while we'd kind of put on a play and uh, it was really just a way for the church to support parents and, and give them a couple hours a week uh, without their kids. And, and I was with my brother and my friends and, you know, we had a lot of crazy stuff happen. Like one time our friend stuck her head in between the little pillars around the, the chancel and the, near the altar and got her head stuck (laughs) that's one fond memory that we had and uh you know but like obviously compared to the experience is that Lindsay and laura shared like i just remember being really fun and we just got to hang out and sing and goof off and then we went home and that's kind of what it was and then when i got to middle school the the middle school program at this episcopal church was not so kick-ass and just for whatever reason was didn't carry the momentum and the and the fun that was present in the in the younger kids program onwards and and I just got so bored and the way I describe it now when I talk about my upbringing in in faith communities is that it was just really lame and uh, once I got to high school I I had met a lot of new people in my town and many of them went to the congregational church which was right across the street and they had a really amazing youth program that was really centered around uh, service work and community service work and then also really personal personal growth and faith formation and and mentoring and it was so transformative for me. And I think that's where I I kind of caught the bug of doing service work. And it was the first place where someone was like, hey, have you considered being a minister? And, you know, I was 17. And I was like, no, don't say that. (laughs) I was like, not ready to hear that right now. Um, You know, Uh, but it was interesting. I remember that moment and it was the director of education and we were actually painting tents that were going down to the, the National Mall in Washington and then later on would have been sent to Darfur. And, uh, and I remember painting, I don't remember what I was painting, but we were decorating these tents. And I remember her asking me that question and me being like, no, I am not answering that right now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it was, uh, it was such an amazing community for me. I'm still really close with a lot of the adults that were chaperones and mentors of, of mine at that point in time. And the, the service component was really, really important for me. One, because it was really fun. We got to go on these trips to different cities in the Northeast and the the mid-Atlantic area uh, at the end of every school year. It was our first, it was always the first week the the public schools were out and, and we went and worked for Habitat for Humanity for a week. And 
often slept on the floor in churches. And one time we were in Baltimore and the church, there was a massive rainstorm and the entire church flooded. And so we were sleeping in the sanctuary all week. And, you know, just a lot of things that happen when you take 80 people on a trip like that. But the other piece that was really amazing for me was this confirmation program. And for those people who aren't familiar with what that term means, confirmation is a rite of passage in many Christian faith communities that really signifies a transition from adolescence to adulthood. And if a young person chooses to be confirmed at the end of that process, then they're they're typically seen as full adults in the life of the community and can vote in, uh, at least in the congregational church, they can vote in different votes that take place throughout the year to decide the direction of the congregation. Um, They can serve on committees. They can serve as deacons. And part of that process was just learning about the faith tradition that we kind of found ourselves to be a part of, recognizing that most youth don't really choose the church that they're involved in. It's usually something that their parents choose for them. And so this whole curriculum had a real openness to it, and it was focused on giving us the the tools to just think about the tradition that we found ourselves in and and what beliefs and practices were a part of that tradition and then at the end of the year we the kind of culmination of this was writing a faith statement Mm -hmm. and that continued that posture of openness and and we weren't required to say we believe in god or we believe that jesus was the son of god or uh we believe in whatever we it was really a faith statement in the broadest sense that we could say anything that we believed it was about us synthesizing the experiences throughout the year one of which was just incredibly powerful for me that i can still remember very well we went to visit a, a house in my hometown that was part of the original underground railroad and uh and it still had a dirt basement so we all, I mean, it's one of those things that when you describe it, it can sound kind of cheesy, but in the moment, it was really amazing. We we all kind of shuffled down the stairs into this basement and just sat in the dirt with the lights off and tried to imagine really what it might have felt like to be in that space fleeing for our lives and, and contemplating a common phrase in in the Bible that's often quoted, which is, you know, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can't overcome that. And it was just a really profound, like bodily experience. And now with all my education, I look back on the the implications of privilege and that we were essentially all white people and and that I don't think we could imagine what that felt like Mm -hmm. for former slaves. But, But at the same time, that critique doesn't taint the the embodied experience that I had in that moment. And anyway, so this this faith statement was just what whatever. And and you could say, I don't believe in anything, or I I just believe in art. I think art is is what is most important to me. And and so that that open-endedness and flexibility and space for creativity in how we articulated what we believed, I think is, if there's one thing, that's the one thing that has been so transformative about that faith community and how it's shaped, shaped my faith. And that because of that, I've never, I've certainly struggled with theological ideas that I, I don't agree with, but that dominate, but I've, I've always felt the freedom to just say, yeah, I don't, I don't agree with that and just move on and, and work at discovering something that I, I do that does feel good to me or that does reflect how I believe that I'm called to, to be in the world. And so, you know, just long story short, I ended up eventually in seminary, like my, my minister predicted when I was 17. (laughs) (laughs) Somewhat reluctantly, I I often, just this morning, I led a, a kind of a, exploration conversation for prospective students. And, you know, I said, yeah, I'm about to graduate from seminary and I'm still wondering what I'm doing here. <laughs> I'm still wondering how, <laughs> how I ended up here, but, but yet I, I trust that I'm in the place that 
that I need to be and I'm in the place that is giving me the tools to do the work that I'm passionate about and the work that I'm called to do in the world, not only working with young people and, and trying to replicate much of the, the experience I had around of, of people who weren't my parents, but who just deeply, deeply cared about me. And, and at a time that, especially in high school, there was a lot of um, stuff going on in my family where my family and my parents especially became people that I, they weren't the people that I felt like I could really hash some of the impacts of that on me out with. I, I couldn't, they were too caught up in it as well to be able to offer me uh, real wisdom and, and perspective. And the mentors and leaders of my youth program and my, my pastors ended up being those people. And, and they, I could drop in at odd hours of the day and night if I saw their car parked outside the church and knock on the window and they let me in and be like, what's going on? And, and I'm just so, so grateful. And, and I recognize that despite all of my despite all of the privilege I've been handed in my life, that even I needed, I, I needed that. Um, and I think that youth, no matter where they are in the world, no matter who their parents are, no matter what their economic status is, that, that they need people who can be that for them. And so that's how I envision my calling in life. And it's just been deeply informed, deeply, deeply informed by that experience as a youth in a congregation. That's amazing. Really quickly, I just wanted to add to both of your experiences just a funny anecdote. So my parents got divorced when I was young as well. And my I was in a Catholic school at the time, my elementary school. And their response to that was to separate all of the children whose parents got divorced from everyone else into Ooh. this little what? club called Banana Splits. Uh, where Stop. they would feed no. us banana splits and tell us, like, try to comfort us about the fact that our parents were going to hell. So, what? <laughs> what? Oh, my God. <laughs> I just wanted to laugh about that. Like a decapitation or something. Right. Oh it's God. like, God. I to say that is not the kind of intervention I was thinking of. <laughs> No, no, no. But I just thought it was funny because like Lauren talked about like these lovely snacks and I was like, well, I guess a banana split would be a good snack if it weren't for like this like terrible thing. And then anyway, I just wanted I thought that it like combined both of your stories a little bit in like this terrible way. Wow. Never told me about that. That's horrible. (laughs) Can y'all describe how faith can be used as a tool to strengthen the left? And if you have any experiences that you want to describe that illustrate this, <laughs> sure. Erica, do you want to go? <laughs> I think I just think you have you have decades more experience with a lot of this stuff than I do. Oh, you are making me sound so old. I'm not sure. No, I, sorry. Okay, no, you have in, in amazing, amazing wisdom. <laughs> I've only been doing this. I, I was a rowing coach for God's sake. I've only been doing this for like two years. Sure. Okay. So strengthening. I mean, first of all, there are ways that faith and spirituality are a really important part of people's lives who are constantly out there on the battlefield fighting for change. I think individually, faith and spirituality serve as a really important grounding force. Um, I think what's hopeful for me about the way that I defined faith earlier is the reality that faith drives hope. And I feel like what keeps our movements alive and keeps people working for the kind of change we want to see is that belief, that deep belief and that hope that a different kind of world is possible. Mm. And so there's, you know, all kinds of things happening in the movement world now to integrate spiritual practice into the practice of organizing, into social change work, into leftist organizational life. The Movement Change Center has been doing a lot of this work, but people sort of recognizing that if you don't care for yourself, not only physically, but spiritually, while you're trying to make change and, you know, when you are out there every day confronted with really horrific and painful stories mm. that you're you're not going to last very long <laughs> and that this is very long-term work. So so there's that level of 
how faith can be used as a tool. But I think also what interests me as an organizer is how institutional power can be used as a tool for the left. And in my work as an organizer, I've seen both individual congregations and networks of congregations you know, use their power towards actual change in really inspiring ways. So the the two examples that come kind of immediately to mind are maybe partially because we heard about Catholic churches. Is I worked with a network of Catholic churches that serve the predominant, mostly the Latino community in San Francisco. And when, you know, as folks don't like to remember, but during the Obama administration, we had a a wave of terrible ice raids in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I remember one vivid memory of, you know, a family coming to my office, which was in a in a Catholic church in the mission, coming to my office first thing in the morning and describing this horrific scene that happened, you know, um, less than a mile away in the Excelsior neighborhood where ICE officers had knocked on their door at 4.30 in the morning and smoke bombed mm. their house and uh, locked the kids in a back bedroom and handcuffed the parents to the kitchen table while they were questioning them. They left the mother with an ankle bracelet and the fa- and they took the father and it was another 48 hours before they were able to locate where the father had been taken and what, you know, the course of deportation might be and so the kids woke up and basically were not were not sure they were going to see their father again and and I remember calling having conversations with the pastors of the churches and with the archdiocese of San Francisco and literally within a couple of hours we had organized mass demonstrations in front of the ICE headquarters in downtown San Francisco and had mm several people high up in the archdiocese calling ICE and demanding information about this father and uh, trying to figure out how we could win a stay of deportation or get this ankle ankle bracelet removed from this mother's ankle. And um, the kids, of course, were citizens, so the whole family was going to be torn apart. and, And it was not an easy battle at all. And this was just one family that we worked with out of many. But the tone change that we saw from ICE when that institutional power began to weigh in was was real. And when when we are able to do that kind of mass organizing and faith leaders say to political officials, this is not right and you can't do this to my families, that ability to speak with moral authority is incredibly useful when when used towards, you know, the change that we want to see. Mm. Um, and every faith, in, faith tradition that I have worked with has a base teaching in justice, has a belief that, you know, we have to treat people fairly and and choosing to act on those beliefs and choosing to put some power behind them becomes a really useful tool. Um, the other sort of quick example I did, a, you know, all of the work that I did come, comes out of deep listening and relationship building within the congregation. So I, the, the one way that I think this gets derailed really quickly and why it stops being helpful to the left is because it becomes about ideology. But mm. The basis of organizing is about relationship building and storytelling. So every campaign I ever did with a congregation was based on what we call a deep listening campaign where people had either house meetings or one-to-one meetings with others in their congregations and really tried to dig into what are the things that are impacting our day-to-day lives. And then what does it make sense for us to put our power behind you know, we're not separate from the system. So how does systemic injustice impact us? Mm-hmm. And so one of the congregations I was working, it's actually the, the LGBT synagogue in San Francisco, they did a listening campaign in their congregation and heard just really horrific and multiple stories about uh, lack of access to health care. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was before Obamacare. And, you know, it was actually just as the city of San Francisco was trying to imagine what a universal healthcare access program might look like. Yes. 
And the congregation had just heard story after story. Some they were really surprised about people who were staying in terribly abusive jobs because they couldn't, they needed, they depend, they, they depended and their family depended on their health care. And people who were, you know, not particular, you know, purposefully not making money in their lives because they depended on Medi-Cal or, you know, you know, it, there were several people who were HIV positive and just frightened about losing the coverage that they so needed. And, and I don't think until that listening campaign that the, con- the congregation as a whole really realized how much people were struggling with this, that people were making it work in various ways, but they were really struggling to find ways to make it work. And so they did some research. And at the time, the mayor of San Francisco was had put together this blue ribbon task force to try to figure out, oh, could we do universal health care? And the process was stalled in a real ugly and useless, in my opinion, <laughs> debate between the unions and the hospitals about who was going to pay. Uh, oh, it's actually the unions, the hospitals, and the restaurant association about who was going to pay for this program. And the congregation had a big forum at their at their synagogue in the sanctuary where the members of the congregation who were working on this presented all of the stories that they had heard, or many of the stories they had heard, and they um, and they invited, you know, folks from city government and from the unions and from the restaurant association. And they put them up on the, they put them up on the DS and they said to them, we want you to pass this program now because the people of San Francisco are depending on it. And within a week, we had legislation that created Healthy San Francisco and made San Francisco the first county in the country to provide universal health care access to all of its residents. Um, And, you know, so Mm -hmm. was the congregation responsible for it? No, but did they provide a really important push and sense of moral authority um, that helped to move that through? Absolutely. Mm. Um, And that kind of clarity and that kind of uh, voice is really important to the change we want to we want to create in all of our communities. Yeah, that's that's a really great example. Mm-hmm. For me right now, the 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 issue that's circling in, in both the community, well, really all the communities I operate in right now, including Pacific School of Religion, is the is the issue in the Bay Area of just the absolute crisis of affordable housing, mm. which isn't something that is just a product of the last few years and the product of Google and Facebook, although that has accelerated the crisis, but is really goes back 40 plus years to the 70s when when cities really stopped building affordable housing proportional to population growth. So what we're really seeing right now is just a backlog of affordable housing not being built. And that's why it's reached crisis proportions. Mm -hmm. So little historical context for that. But in in the, the congregation I'm currently a part of right now, we had a, a major fire about a year and a half ago. And part of the process of deciding how to rebuild has created opportunity for conversations around incorporating an affordable housing project in that rebuild. Mm. And it, it hasn't been quite the the same process that Erica outlined in terms of a deep listening. And I actually think that the lack of that model is partly what has made it a fairly contentious process where whereas I think if if we had had a, a true deep listening kind of model I think that there might be a little more consensus but that might be besides the point but anyway the, the congregation is really wrestling with you know how do we be stewards of especially the wealth that we have in terms of land and power and uh, and especially sometimes clout with the Berkeley City Council and the mayor, just because our congregation is one of the oldest in Berkeley and, and just has, like Erica said, a, a fair amount of institutional power and institutional power that, that sometimes is backed by financial power, but also is backed by 
being a member of the community for such a long time. And so this congregation is really wrestling with, you know, how do we be stewards for the next hundred years? Because the part of the building that burned down was a hundred years old. And so we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we build a facility that really acts out our values and our beliefs? And many of us feel that it's absolutely necessary to respond to this crisis uh, in any way we can and help our community and, and help our wider community be stewards of its resources for the next hundred years. And so that's how that, that issue is acting out in the, in the church I'm a part of. And then at the same time, this issue impacts the youth that I work with um, at Youth Spirit Artworks, many of whom have aged out of the foster care system and many of whom are queer or trans and have either been forcibly kicked out of their homes by their families or have chosen to leave because that didn't feel like a safe space to be anymore. And so many of them live in, in shelters or and those who don't are, are often uh, housing insecure so not necessarily homeless, but their their housing situation is incredibly insecure and volatile and, and often unsafe. And these youth are also predominantly youth of color. And so all of the systemic forces are really going against them as well. And so their families disproportionately are experiencing poverty and and struggle to build wealth and uh, and just everything that, that is associated with uh, with racism and systems of of white supremacy are obviously disproportionately affecting these youth in in so so many ways. But this this organization actually implemented one of these deep listening processes and really asked the youth starting over two years ago, what is the one thing that you need? Recognizing that they need many things, but what is the one thing that you most need right now? And the the answer that arose out of that was housing. We need stable, mm-hmm. safe housing so that we can go to school, so that we can really just start the rest of our lives and not be worried about where we're going to sleep or whether where we do sleep, we're going to be faced with some kind of coercive experience where we're, we're put in unsafe situations just to ensure that we're not sleeping on the street. And so that whole visioning process has has reached its peak and and the result is that we are trying to build the first youth tiny house village in the nation um oh, wow and recognizing that temporary housing isn't an ideal solution but because of the nature of tiny homes and how cheap they are to build how mobile they are and that they can be put up virtually in a weekend we're working with a, a landowner who does not yet want to sell her land, but wants to partner with a group that's not just going to rent it out and make money, but is really going to try and improve the community. So that's actually one of my tasks right now is to help these homes get built and, uh, and, and also to work with the faith communities in the area to help fundraise for the materials and provide the labor and all of that. But, but that is how that community is specifically responding to the needs of the people it serves. And so even though YSA isn't you know, a church, it's not a congregation, it functions as one of these alternative communities that picks up the function of really acting as each other's family. Mm. Um, and so even though the mission of YSA is related to arts and jobs training, we recognize that we can't do that really well if our youth don't have safe places to live. Um, mm. So those are just two examples of how two different communities that I'm personally involved in at the moment are striving to use power and use the communities that they've cultivated and the resources that they have, whether it be financial or um, networking resources, or also more just moral authority. Um, and one of the most powerful things I've witnessed is when our youth attend the city council meetings and talk to our city council members and our mayor and say, 
and, and force them to listen to their experience. And, and that has definitely shifted positions and, and really moved the dial uh, on certain issues. And I've, I've watched it happen and I've, I've watched, I've watched the faces of, of city council members and the mayor really like change because all of a sudden they have to hear the story mm. and they have to look at this 17 year old kid who's just been kicked down, kicked from one place to the next, um, either in the foster care system or because of some other circumstance that has nothing to do with, with who they are or what they've done. It's something that's happened to them um, and not by their own choice. And, and these people have had to look at these youth and, and decide, you know, how am I going to respond? And unfortunately, some people decide to not respond and to prioritize other issues. But, but for the most part, uh, t- storytelling, really honest, vulnerable storytelling can, can shift people's understandings and perspectives and, and move the conversation away from fears and anxieties and preoccupation with, well, how are we going to make this happen? And is it even possible to, to wait, these youth deserve these, these youth deserve this. And, and then it becomes, okay, how can we help make this happen? Even if we don't know exactly how it's going to work. So yeah, those are the the two examples I have most concretely at the moment. Totally. That's amazing. Those are great examples. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to break up this episode into two parts. And you just listened to the first half. And the second half is going to be a lot more Marxist analysis of religion and theology and the theology of capitalism. So we hope that you'll join us next week for the second half where Erica and Lauren will finish up their conversation with us. As always, you can hit us up on Twitter at Season of the Bee. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. We are putting new merch up on our website, seasonofthebee.com. If you are a musician or you have any comments, please feel free to send us an email at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Slide some money our way on our Patreon account. (laughs) (laughs) So we can keep bringing you these sweet takes, fiery takes. And uh, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. Thank you. Yay. Well, thank you so much and love you, Lizzie. Love you, Laura. Bye. Season of the Bitch.